You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Staten, Jeremy Paxton, and Hunter Atkins. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 107 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Staten, and I'm joined this week by Jeremy Paxton. And in just a few moments, Hunter Atkins will join us to talk a little Astros baseball. But... Jeremy, we've got a, a pretty busy show on tap today. We've got John McClain from the Houston Chronicle uh, discussing the uh, Texans, what we can expect as we get ready for the 2017 season, which kicks off this Sunday at NRG Stadium against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And also we've got Amy Paget from Sikkim 365 to talk about the uh, the relief efforts with Hurricane Harvey and kind of what the, uh, the Baylor community has done. But uh, Jeremy... Uh, it's been a tumultuous week for a lot of reasons. Of course, Hurricane Harvey uh, wrecked havoc on the city of Houston. There's still a ton of water on the west side of town, which is where you're from. Uh, I mean, you know, if we were hoping for any reprieve uh, this weekend from Baylor football, we certainly didn't have that from an embarrassing loss against Liberty. Yeah, it's, it's funny you, you you mentioned that a reprieve. You know, earlier in the day, um, as as if the divine was handing something to me on a silver platter, Texas lost to Maryland. <laughs> Um, Texas is back. Texas is back, guys. Uh, ranked number twenty-three, I believe, and they lost to Maryland by a solid ten points. And really, if you looked at the game, like I it mean, wasn't Mar- that close. Yeah, I mean, Maryland was was definitely the better team. Um, and but you know, at least Texas lost to a power power five program, right. a D one program. Whereas Baylor, we we lost to uh, what, like a one double A school. We haven't had FCS. that. Yeah, FCS. I mean, to, they're to, FCS. to be fair, they are transitioning. Right now to an FBS school. Okay, so so there so there are trans FCS. Is that some yeah, new yeah, thing now? I think so. Okay, yeah. It was it was it's still embarrassing. Probably the most embarrassing loss uh, in program history, at least in the modern era. And I think if you're looking at kind of where the program is, I mean, we had a major analyst predicting Baylor to win the Big Twelve. Here. I think that was ridiculous. That I was Joe, thought it was crazy. Joey Galloway predicted that, and yeah. I thought that was absurd. Completely absurd, but it goes to show just how unreliable this stuff is heading into the season. You never know what you're going to get. You know, I think with Baylor. You look at what happened, and I mean, from a fan's perspective, it's horrible. But then you look at what was going on in the roster, and we we had true freshmen out 12 there, twelve true freshmen, twelve true freshmen playing positions that juniors and seniors should have been playing. And you had guys. I mean, it's not. It wasn't just that. It wasn't just the players. I mean, it was a coaching staff. You could see everything going wrong from you know not adjusting the defense to just. I mean, Liberty taking advantage of just clumsiness on both sides of the ball, but mainly defense, of course. Yeah, it, it, it was really disappointing, honestly. I mean, I drove up Saturday morning for the game. I actually had to leave uh, midway through the third quarter when the game was close. Uh, not because I was frustrated with the game. I, I wanted to stay there and see the whole game because I, I knew the game was going to be close. I mean, before the season started, I predicted Baylor would go 5-7. and seven. I think, you know, three or four wins is probably now the high mod- watermark. But who knows? I mean, maybe against UTSA, they could surprise us. Maybe they can go on the road, get a, a win against Duke, and then who knows? The whole season could turn around on that moment. But... I think you've got to be patient with this team. I, I left in the third quarter because of Hurricane Harvey. There was a, uh, a 12 p.m. curfew, 12, a midnight curfew here in Houston. But I was listening to the game uh, on 1660 and listening to the John Morris call the game. And, it, and to me, the most frustrating thing was not being able to stop Liberty on third down and long situations. I mean, that was something that we were frustrated with last year during the Phil Bennett era at, at Baylor, but it, it seems like they almost regressed. I mean, this is not like Oklahoma. This is not Oklahoma State where you're, you're, you're facing NFL talent. I mean, this is FCS level talent. This is not FBS level talent. Uh, and, and that was frustrating to me. I, I, I do know that the team is young. They are dealing with injury issues. 
but come on. No excuse. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not even going to give them that. Uh, Matt Rule should have done a better job coming into this. I mean, you, you saw... I, I do think you, people you, should be patient with him, though. I, I do think you should be patient. All this fire Matt Rule stuff, I think that that's crazy. Um, of course, one of the... So one of the things that, that John McClain mentions in our interview is that sports have a way of healing... Uh, healing communities, healing people when tragedies strike. You know, sports can have this healing effect. And I really think it's important for Matt Rule to realize that Baylor football and the Baylor fan base is in such kind of a weird place right now. We're, we're still very fractured. And that winning football games, especially against easy opponents, is going to have a healing effect. I mean, whether whether you agree with... Um, you know that or not i mean it's that that's reality is that you know winning football games and showing that there is life after everything that's happened um i I will say with there is life after comment i i think that rule is doing a great job already preparing his student athletes for what's next you know a lot of them aren't going to play in the nfl sure but they're going to be members that are going to contribute to our society And, and sunday afternoon after you know the embarrassing loss against liberty they went out and volunteered in the community uh, to help with Hurricane Harvey relief efforts. So you, you've got to commend them on that. I mean, most of these players probably didn't want to show up, but they were out there in the community lending a helping hand. And, and to me, I think that says a lot about the character and morale on the football program. And, and, and to me, I think that means the program is heading in the right direction. Right. And I, but I want to make I want to make it clear though, and I think I speak for a lot of Baylor fans. We want a football coach and a life coach. He can't just be a life coach, right? You know, I, I, and I think he's done very well with media appearances. He's done very well, kind of sweet talking the fan base into believing that he knows what he's doing. But he has yet to show that. And this was the easiest test to be able to show. You know what? I can run an offense. I can run a competent defense, which. If we remember, that's what he's known for, right? He's a, he's a, he's a defensive well, guy. You look at what he did I mean, at Temple. The first year they were, what, 2 and 10? And then after that, sure. you know, they had back-to-back, you know, 8 plus 1 seasons. Right, and they, and they won the uh, – what, what, what division were they in? They were – the AAC? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, they, were, they, they, they won that – they won their division. So good for them. But – and you also remember Art Bryles. I mean, you know, we have to keep talking about him. He was 4 and 8 his first two seasons at Baylor. Obviously a very different Baylor program. You had an old stadium. But um, it's, it's there's a lot of similarities. Sure. I mean, granted, the stadium and everything is is new. There's new facilities. You're still dealing. At least when Bryles came in, he had, you know, he had to recruit new 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 players. The guys that he had on his team were like Joe Pathelic, Jordan Lake, guys who you know probably wouldn't start at other Big Twelve schools. But here, you're starting twelve freshmen who were playing like high school football at this time last year. I mean, and you're telling them to go and and learn a new complex system. It's not easy. I'm not, I'm not trying to make excuses or anything like that, but I, I just want to kind of dial back on some of this fear that Baylor fans have that of being the this, doormat yeah, forever right. again because that, that's, that's not going to happen. I, mean, we had, I, I don't think that's going to happen. We had a decade and a half of absolute darkness in terms of football, and I know that if you look at the city of Waco, if you look at the community around there, Baylor football is so important. I mean, it really is a, it's a driver economically for the city. Um, and really, you could credit the Baylor program for kind of turning around the economic conditions in the city to a degree. I mean, also Chip and Joanna Gaines, you know. Um, anyways, but if there is a silver lining to the game um, and just talking talking about stats, um, we only had seven penalties for 61 yards. And <laughs> that, that, that sounds kind of bad, like seven penalties, 61 yards. That, but it's typically over 100. But we had, I mean, remember the West Virginia game a couple of years ago? I mean, we had like seven, we had like 15 or 17 penalties. I mean, it was an insane amount of yards we gave up. And they weren't like pre-snap penalties. They were like personal foul, like and, just, just dumb mental penalties. And, and, and turnovers, like turnovers, penalties. I mean, like we, we seemed like a more disciplined team. We didn't know what we were doing. 
but it seems like the culture on the, you know, with regards to the program has changed a little bit yeah. and there's a little bit more discipline. Like we didn't have a false start penalty or we had like maybe one or two. Like it wasn't like, you know, in the browse area, it was like a false start every other play and it was it's ridiculous. they were moving so quickly. Yeah, but- they were moving quick. They didn't know what to do. And, uh, you know, they're, they're seem like they've kind of toned down the tempo, but it's been to the benefit of the team, at least in the, in terms of you know penalty yardage yeah absolutely and i don't want to spend too much time talking about baylor football because we know all of our listeners aren't you know baylor football fans and again we're going to talk uh texans with john mcclain here in a moment we're going to talk with amy paget talk about hurricane harvey release and also hunter who is probably by the time that you're listening to this on a plane heading to vietnam but he stopped by and we talk a little astros baseball obviously the big news this week justin verlander traded to the houston astros which means kate upton is also coming to town which is uh quite exciting uh but uh jeremy uh let's talk real quick about hurricane harvey uh devastated the city i know you guys were essentially refugees for a few days i was a refugee up in dallas uh i know a lot of people that lost their homes my parents took in water in their house about two feet of water uh, sad time for the city, but what have you kind of seen with, you know, the city's resilience, just kind of, I don't know, powering through and rallying around one another here in the past few days? Oh my gosh, it's been incredible. I think, um, really, and I, I don't know if this is just the, the character, of the, I don't know if this is the character of the city, but I, I saw, um, a picture tweeted out that was, um, people wrapped around a building downtown near the George R. Brown. And it wasn't people looking for relief. It wasn't people looking for any sort of, you know, uh, bottled water or something else you might need in the wake of a massive storm. It was people lined up around the building to volunteer. Yeah. They were literally standing in line for hours to sign up, get screened and be able to volunteer to help people who've been affected by this tragedy. Um, it's been absolutely incredible to see, you know, fellow Houstonians step up in a way that, that you wouldn't expect. In fact, I was at Walmart the other day. You know, we were trying to get food uh, to restock uh, in my girlfriend's apartment because her power went out, lost all the food in the fridge. So we were at Walmart trying to get stuff. And there were people leaving Walmart with cases and cases of bottled water and pillows and toiletries and other things that um, the mayor said were needed for the flood victims. So I've, I've, I've just been blown away by the generosity of the city. But, um, you know, it's really, um, you know, recovery from a storm like this is really about the long game. And it's it's great that all this is happening right now. But my question is, you know, like in six months and a year, it, you know, is this still are people still going to be this enthusiastic about helping flood victims? Because I know it's not just about the next couple of weeks. And we've had floods, like massive floods in the last three years, I think four in the last three years. So it, I don't know. The city of Houston needs to do something about drainage you need to shore up the attics reservoir and you know the the, the barker in the, the attics bar- I, yeah. I i live right near it you know i watched uh last week i watched water rescues i had their coast guard blackhawk helicopters flying around flying around my neighborhood it was like a it was like something off a movie it was surreal well i've got this crazy video of these blackhawks like rescuing people out of their homes on the north side of briar forest where more of my dad lives and um, it was incredible. But what's happened with a lot of the flooding in Houston, the reason that the tax day floods, Memorial Day floods, and Hurricane Harvey has had such a negative effect on the city is because in the Katy area and in West Houston, what used to be prairie land, what used to be open field that would soak up a lot of this water has been built over. Um, these floodplains basically have been built over. And so um, the water has nowhere to go. Yeah. You know, water is not soaking the cement like it does grass. That's why my, that's <laughs> why my parents' house had been flooded. And, I mean, they, and, they live near the Exxon campus. I mean, up in the Woodlands area, right? And it's it's been a lot of a lot of development that's been kind of it's been irresponsible, to be honest with you. And that's what's what that's what's made the flooding problem worse. Now, of course, there's always things that they can do with the bayous to increase 
to, to better that situation, but those are, aren't, aren't coming anytime soon. Yeah, but it, it is great to see the city respond. They're going to get a reprieve hopefully this week as the Texans take on the Jacksonville Jaguars. Astros 3-0 and since they returned to Houston. They uh, they go to Seattle this week. So I think there's a lot of excitement from a sports perspective. And obviously, uh, it, it's just going to take time here in Houston. But uh, Houston is strong. You know, Be proud of Houston. Everyone's kind of rallying together. It, it, it's great to see. And I, I hope that you know the spirit of what we saw in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, I hope that kind of you know comes to Houston. I mean, I... I don't know. I, I hate to see Houston as spotlight for something like this. It was great to see it during the Super Bowl where everyone was just, you know, so excited about the city. But I maybe, maybe that is just, you know, kind of makes this, I don't know, more closer to home for people that, you know, saw the city on a huge spotlight back in February. And, and now they see it, you know, in, in shambles as a result of the floods. But I don't know. We'll, we'll see how everything turns out as, uh, you know government approves funds to help people rebuild here. I've seen stats saying up to a hundred billion dollars worth of damage. If you factor in like infrastructure economics, I mean, that's, that's insane numbers. My office building is probably going to be closed in the next two to three months as a result of taking in water. So it's just a very different time here in Houston. But uh, Jeremy, we've got some great guests coming up here on the podcast. Uh, so without further ado, we don't want to bore anyone uh, any further talking about Baylor or Hurricane Harvey talk. But if you want to follow just our work, just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, and also check out our website at weeklybrewcast.com. But we've got some great guests on deck. So it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is John McClain, a.k.a. The General, the uh, the NFL guru for the Houston Chronicle. And, and John, before we started recording, uh, we were kind of, uh, I don't know, disappointed and shocked about Baylor's performance uh, over the weekend against uh, Liberty, who I, I didn't even know where Liberty was until this past week. But, uh, John, tell me that there is a brighter future this week as the Texans prepare to take on the Jacksonville Jaguars here in Houston for the season opener. If Liberty, a 35-point underdog, can beat Baylor by three points, then Jacksonville certainly capable of beating the Texans, even though they've never beaten the Texans under Bill O'Brien. He's 6-0 and against them. And um, I don't think that's going to happen, of course. I think the fans are going to be – they're going to be so fired up for this game when J.J. Watt comes running out on the field last, waving a Texas flag. My goodness, the noise level will be – through the roof, that should give them a lot of incentive and motivation, but still going to come down to how the quarterback plays. Absolutely, and I, I, I want to touch on the Texans more in depth here in just a moment, but you just mentioned J.J. Watt, and obviously the city's going through uh, a very tumultuous time. Uh, you know, I was at the Astros game uh, on Sunday, and you could just tell everyone was wearing those Houston Strong shirts, and, and J.J. Watt today uh, was out in the community uh, donating supplies that I guess were gifted from uh, the state of Wisconsin. He's raised more than $17 million. I guess what I want to ask you is this, twofold. One, what was the vibe like in New Orleans, and then when you guys were in Dallas uh, practicing last week, and, and, and what has JJ's kind of response been meant to the community, and, and what does it mean for uh, the team to kind of see him taking this leadership role to try to help out? As you know, it doesn't surprise anybody that knows what to see him do that because he always does so much in the community. What surprised me is he's able to raise so much money so fast after beginning with a goal a week ago on social media of 200,000 and he put in the first hundred and now it's more than 17 and I'm sure as he's pointed out it's not a week it's not a month it's a months long process please keep your donations going and he guarantees you it goes right to the people who need it 
You never know when you donate to organizations exactly where your money goes, but what does. Now, um, other players have joined joined in. It's been overwhelming, really, to see the response of people around the country, from a little kid, his lemonade stand in Pennsylvania out in front of his house, trying to raise money for the flood victims in Texas, to teams, celebrities, normal everyday people. They've seen the pictures. They've seen the the floods on TV, and so many people want to help. And and uh, it's been it's been the support has been mind-boggling, really. And the fact that Watt rolled up his sleeves, got those 18-wheelers here, and load up on supplies, and the Texans went to four different places today to pass out to pass out goods for the for the relief effort. And it's not going to end now. You know, the Astros, Rockets, everybody's involved. I think it's amazing that a thousand, somebody said like a thousand colleges answered Kelvin Sampson, the UH basketball coaches, pleaded to uh, to contribute in some way. You saw the big 18-wheelers from Baylor and SMU and Tech all coming down here to carrying things to help people. And Cameron Mabin of the Astros, he was donating before he knew he was coming to the Astros. So he got off on a great start. But I've never seen anything like it. You know, we saw some of this in New Orleans, but New Orleans doesn't have the infrastructure that we do, the leadership from the county and the city level. Our leader, our city leaders, led by Mayor Sylvester Turner and County Judge Ed Emmett, have been just tremendous. And Watt is kind of the face of the relief effort. You know, and I think that kind of brings up an interesting question, and it's that, you know, the relief effort is not just from now until next week or two weeks. I mean, this is going to be a month, even years-long process of bringing the city back. What what role do you think that J.J. and some of the other Texans are going to have moving forward in the relief effort? Well, first of all, sports are part of the healing process. And down here, since football is the biggest sports, football can help. Now, the truth of the matter is, I know I talked to people at the Astros game today who've already got people working on their house. And um, think about the carpenters, the builders, all the people that can find work here. The insurance people are going to be 24-7 for a long time. And I think it's not just J.J. and the Texans. If the Astros get to the World Series, that'll make people feel better. Somebody said, why would anybody in Houston want to go to a ball game? Well, I'm thinking, you don't know Houston very well. It's usually people in other states that don't understand how sports can be galvanizing. We saw it happen in New Orleans. I've never heard a louder stadium than the Superdome. When the first game back after Katrina shut down the dome and had to renovate it, when they came back to play a primetime game against the Atlanta Falcons, the noise was deafening. And I think that's the way it's going to be Sunday. And a lot of people were saying, well, they need to swap the game, move it to Jacksonville. No, they don't. Stadium wasn't hurt. The area around it's not hurt. You can get there. And the players said, if we can be a distraction for three hours from the trials and tribulations that everybody's gone through, then we will do everything we can. We'll give our, promise to give our best effort. Bill O'Brien dedicated the season to Houston and the fans, the people that went through so much tragedy and suffering and devastation. And he said, I can't promise we're going to win, but I can promise you nobody will play harder. 
I, I think that's kind of a good thing. It seems like the the city is going to be proud of the Astros. They're going to be proud of the Texans, and especially proud of JJ Watt as he runs onto the field Sunday afternoon against the uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars. But I guess moving forward to that game specifically, this is going to be the first season opener that Tom Savage is going to be the starting quarterback. Uh, it's the fourth different starting quarterback to open a season in the last four years under Bill O'Brien. Uh, what are the what are the expectations for Savage going into the season? I mean, he, he looked impressive to me uh, for the most part during uh, preseason camp. He's the fifth starting quarterback in a row going back, new one each year, going back to Matt Schaub. Next year, Deshaun Watson will be number six. And Tom, he is the least experienced starting quarterback to begin a season the Texans have had since David Carr started the first game of the first season when he had no experience. And Tom knows the system. He can make every throw. He's not mobile. He needs to be, considering the offensive line. Might be mediocre at best. I thought, sure, Dwayne Brown would come back and play since the big game check start this week. And he's going to make 553000 a week. But I'm told he will not be there. And he's, he's losing 553000 a week. That's money he will not get back. They might give back fine money, but they're not going to uh, they're not going to redo his contract. So I don't know what he's hoping to accomplish. He'll eventually retire. Maybe he's hoping to be traded. Somebody else will give him a big contract he wants. But he just turned 32. And without Dwayne, that offensive line is not as good. So that's why you see them run a lot of short routes. A lot of short, safe routes, get rid of the ball quick, move the chains. That's what Bill O'Brien does. He doesn't want that quarterback to throw for 300 yards. He wants him not to throw an interception. You know, be a game manager. Throw the ball safely. Uh, get some points in the red zone, even if it's a field goal. Ryan Fitzpatrick had 17 touchdowns, eight interceptions. Brian Hoyer had 19 touchdowns, seven interceptions. Brock Osweiler had 15 and 16, and that's why he was on Bill O'Brien's bad side so much. So Savage has got to not protect the football, number one. They're going to run it like crazy. The quarterback, an inexperienced quarterback's best friend's strong running game, and we believe the running game will be good and the defense will be good. And as far as Savage, we don't really know because he hasn't been able to stay healthy long enough to get a good read on what he's capable of doing. You know, you mentioned Dwayne Brown a little bit earlier. I mean, he's former first-round draft pick, uh, you know, all-pro, left tackle. How I, – I, I think that a lot of people believe that he would just hold out during camp and then come back to start the season. Obviously, that's not the case. What do the Texans do long-term at left tackle? Do, do they try to move forward and move on without him? And if he does decide that, you know, one week's enough for him to hold out, how long will it take him to get into game shape? Dwayne's worked out like crazy. We saw last year when he came back from a surgery repair, ruptured quad tendon. He missed, I think, three games and came back for the fourth. He played immediately. He was in great shape. Took him a while to roll round into good playing condition, probably another two games. So he's been healthy this time. He moved out to L.A. His wife got a good job. And I'll say this, to be able to give up 553000 a week when you're 32, then you must have invested your money really well. And I don't, you know, that's all a player can do is withhold his services if he doesn't like his contract. And they'd redo it with one year left, but not with two. They wouldn't do it for DeAndre Hopkins last year. 
and Wayne saw how they Dwayne saw how they've taken care of him. Five year, eighty one million extension with forty nine guaranteed. And so um, I just I'm stunned that he's not here. I thought he would come in get those game checks like uh, Walter Jones used to do in Seattle, Orlando Pace in St. Louis. They would stay out, stay out, and then report, step right in, play really well. As it is, Kendall Lamb, undrafted three years ago, starting for the first time. Right tackle, Breno Giacomini, who had a back problem last year with the Jets. He's the right tackle. Julian Davenport, fourth-round pick this year from Bucknell. He is the backup left tackle, but he's not ready to play in the NFL. He may turn out to be good. He may not. And uh, then they got Chris Clark. It wouldn't surprise me. I don't think there is uh, anybody that they could bring in on the waiver wire. But if they really and truly believe that Dwayne is going to hold out and hope to be traded, it wouldn't surprise me if they don't try to find a way to trade for another tackle. It won't be anybody any good. But sometimes you see a team with a surplus unload somebody for like a fourth or fifth round pick. Texans has some strength at positions that they might could try to trade. But those offensive linemen, especially tackles, are so valuable. You don't it's, you don't get good ones for nothing. It's got to hurt when you acquire them, or it or it's you know if it doesn't hurt, it's not worth the risk. One of the ways is sort of mask and offensive lines inadequacies I guess to have a strong running game and, and Deontay Foreman who uh, was drafted uh, out of Texas has been impressive uh, during fall camp and, and during the preseason games how big of an impact do you think he's going to have on the Texans roster this season he missed a New Orleans game he had a groin injury and he's supposed to be back a hundred percent if he's not then they can't play him because if you play a guy that's got a groin or hamstring they're going to make it even worse. I'm told it's 100%. Bill O'Brien has run the ball more than any team in the league in his three years. That philosophy is not going to change with them bringing in Foreman. And I was sorry to see them wave Akeem Hunt to make room for Andy Jones, a receiver waived by the Cowboys, but they needed receivers and they kept six running backs. So Foreman has moved up to number two. Alfred Blue has a high ankle sprain. He's going to be out a while. So this is going to be Deontay's chance to touch the ball eight to ten times, and if he runs and catches the way he did in preseason, he's going to put a heat on Lamar Miller for the starting job, I believe. John, kind of shift gears to talk about the defense a little bit with um, you know Watt and Clowney both healthy on the same line. What are the what can we expect from the Texans defense uh, heading into the first part of the season? I've got Clowney playing linebacker when they're in a base three four. If team comes out and nickel, then they'll move him. To end, and one of the things they do with Clowney, this is Mike Vrabel's first year as a coordinator in preseason. He moved him all over the place. Sometime you'd see Watt move to right end, Clowney stand up outside of him. Sometime you'd see Clowney at left outside linebacker. Sometimes when they have two defensive linemen, and no, and that's all on the field, you see Clowney standing up over the center. So they moved him around a lot. I don't know how you can double he and Watt. Watt absolutely has to be doubled. I think Clowney, who is really, really strong and played the run great last year, and it's hard to get sacks at the five technique where he played, and if they're going to play him an outside linebacker, then he's not going to have to have his hand in the dirt as much. 
and he can rush like he did in college when he stood up a lot. And uh, winning merciless. And then Bernard McKinney last year, the only linebacker with 100 tackles and five sacks. I think Bernard is going to be even better. And Brian Cushing looks better than he's looked in years. And then the guy to keep an eye on on their defense is DJ Reader, second-year nose tackle. He ended up starting eight games last year, seven at end, and they weren't going to bring back Vince Wilfork and because they're ready for Reader to play. So I look for Reader to really impress people in his second year. That front seven has got a chance to be the best in the NFL, but if the defense doesn't allow fewer points than last year, if it doesn't force more turnovers, if it doesn't score more than one touchdown, it's not going to be a great defense. It wasn't a great defense last year. They allowed the fewest yards, but they didn't do any of those other things I just mentioned. And that's their goal this season, allow fewer points, force turnovers, shorten the field for the offense, score three or four touchdowns. And Are they capable of it? Yes, they are, but they got to get a really good pass rush that was missing without Watt. You mentioned Frabel taking over as defensive coordinator. You still have Romeo Cornell on staff. How have, I guess, how have the defensive players kind of adjusted to that change? And has there been a change of philosophy at all, or is it sort of a status quo? Not a change in philosophy because Vrabel played for Romeo at New England. They won Super Bowls together. And the reason Mike left the Ohio State is alma mater, where um, he he loves coaching, was to be reunited with Romeo and come to the NFL and learn from him. And they're a lot different. You know, Romeo's one of the all-time great coordinators. I'm glad he agreed to be the assistant head coach, Bill O'Brien has him helping with offense as well as defense. And Vrabel, he's got a sounding board. Romeo said if he sees something that he thinks Vrabel ought to know, he's comfortable enough in their relationship to tell him. And he's always there for Vrabel. But any new coach is going to want to put his wrinkles on whatever he takes over. And I'm not sure what it'll be. They didn't show a lot in preseason. But we're going to find out quick against the Jaguars. In Blake Bortles, and I can't wait to see how he deploys his players. I don't, you know, a perfect thing for a defensive coordinator is not to have to blitz a lot, to be able to get the pressure from five guys. And if you can do that, and the Texans should be able to do that, then they can keep more in coverage. And I think that's the plan. Now, I say that maybe Vrabel's going to blitz like crazy, but I don't think you can do that because the defensive backs are not good enough to cover man-to-man for very long, and that's why I think he'll stick with a basic pass rush from five players. That's a pretty good five when it comes to getting after the quarterback. Speaking of quarterback and Blake Bortles, you know, he's he's kind of been the doghouse a little while now, and uh, he's kind of underperformed. And in addition to that, you know, we've got some injury issues on the Texans uh, in week one. What do you think we can expect um, from the game in terms of Blake Bortles and his play versus the Texans and their injury issues? Well, the injury issues are not going to affect the Texans' defense. They're fine on defense. And the uh, I would imagine, think about this, you're Blake Bortles, you're, you're having problems with your confidence. You're under a lot of pressure. you got a new coach, a new football czar and Tom Coughlin. They're trying to measure what you bring to the table, and they want you to produce. They want consistency, and you haven't been able to do it. So you break the huddle, and you're at the line of scrimmage, and you see J.J. Watt 
and you see Jadeveon Clowney jumping around. Is he over the left guard, the right guard, the right end, the left end? Whitney Merciless lining up opposite him. DJ Reader, a nose tackle with some pass rush skills. And then Bernardrick McKinney, 6'4", 260, and he's rushing like an outside linebacker, even though he's an inside linebacker. And then Brian Cushing standing in the middle and usually dropping into short coverage. That's kind of scary. And Tom Brady's not going to be affected by it. But Blake Bortles, as soon as I say this, it won't happen. But I'll be stunned if they don't force at least, if they don't have at least three interceptions of Bortles. Now, the only difference is they need to get ahead of him, force him to pass. But Leonard Fournette's going to come out there in his first game. They may run him 30 times, try to pound a rock, and to try to keep Bortles out of those pressure situations. So the first thing they have to do is stop Fournette and force Bortles into second and third and long and then get after him. And if they can do that, they'll first turn up, force turnovers, maybe shorten the field, maybe score a defensive touchdown, and, and they'll be off. And they need to win this game because – the next one is Thursday night at Cincinnati, and the one after that's at New England. They could mail in that loss and save some money on going to Foxborough. <laughs> but they got a chance to start 2-0. and O'Brien's been 3-1 and twice, including last year, and he's been 1-3 in 2015, his second year, but finished 9-7 and every year because the quarterback play has been so mediocre. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that, you know, you hope that the Texans this year have finally figured it out with Tom Savage at the quarterback position, and then you hope for the long term that, uh, you know, that they have their guy with Deshaun Watson. But when you look around at the rest of the AFC South, uh, to me, I think the team that uh, is probably going to win the division is the Tennessee Titans. I think they have to be the favorites. But then uh, you also look at Indianapolis. Andrew Luck likely not going to be starting the first few weeks of the season because of a shoulder injury. Uh, who, who, who do you peg as the favorite in the AFC South? The Titans, I picked the Titans to go 10-6, and six, win in the division. Texans are trying to win it for the fifth time in seven years, third in a row. They've dominated the, the Jaguars under O'Brien, dominated the Titans. They're 500 against the Colts, but they've won, I think, three in a row. Some of the young guys are, what's the big deal about Indianapolis? You guys act like beating them is a big deal. You know, I've never lost to them. And they just don't understand or they don't remember Peyton Manning. And I think with Andrew Luck out, that makes them mediocre at best. They've had Andrew the last two years. Now, he missed half of 2015, but he played really well last year. And they still finished 8-8. Eight and eight. They've been 8-8 eight and eight the last two seasons. After his first two seasons, ended up in the divisional round of the championship game. And everybody had him going to the Super Bowl in 2015 so if Andrew Luck gets healthy then the Colts are in it just as much as the Texans and the Titans I think the only thing I can be sure of anybody really about this division is that Jacksonville finished last last year Mike Malarkey in Tennessee they draft uh, um, gosh what's Henry's first name my mind's gone blank the running back from Alabama they draft him in the second round and they signed to Marco Murray, and they went with running game first. Exotic smash mouth, he called it, Derrick Henry. And and so Jacksonville's doing that this year with Fournette. The Texans bringing in Foreman to go with Miller. The three teams are playing throwback football. Run the ball. Run it between the tackles. Try to wear down 
the defense. Indianapolis would like to do it, but Frank Gore is going to be 34 years old, I think, or maybe that's 44. I just know he's been around forever. And they need to develop a better running game to protect their quarterback, whether it's Luck, Scott Colzine, Jacoby Brissett, whoever. And and I think they'll get with the program next season, and you're going to have these four throwback coaches acting like they're playing in the old AFC Central. We're definitely looking forward to the season and um, thinking about some other things that are coming up. Um, you have a Hard Knocks dinner this week. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I did. Now, I've, I've had three, three, three dinners in a row, and all of them have been postponed because a lot of people are still having problems because of uh, Hurricane Harvey, the aftermath. So with what we do on those, I did three last year, and I will be doing another one at the Houstonian, which is just an incredible place. And we talk ball. They limit it to 50 people. And the way I asked them to fix the room is everybody sits facing each other, and I want everybody talking. We talk college football. We talk NFL. always get a lot of Aggies and Longhorns. And, um, and so it's fun. It's just a night of football talk. With great wine, great drink, and um, and I really I really enjoyed doing that. And then these other speeches I do, I, they they want all they want to know about the Texans, and then they want to talk a little about uh, the Big Twelve and the SEC. And I'm happy to do that as well. I love talking football, I like talking about the Astros right now too. But you can't beat this time of the year in the state of Texas, and with our first. Weekend of games postponed, high school, college, and uh, the last week of preseason. This next weekend, when all of them will be going full swing, it is going to be a great weekend in the Houston area. Yeah, definitely excited and looking forward to all of uh, football, baseball as we get toward the postseason, just kind of rolling into one. Uh, the fall is definitely the best time to be a sports fan here in the city. And also I can attest at the Hard Knocks dinners. I went to the one back in February ahead of the Super Bowl, and uh, that, that was just a great event, uh, you know, able to meet Elvin Bethea. That was that was really cool. Uh, but, John, uh, this is opening week for the NFL. Uh, what do you have coming up for coverage this week on the Chronicle? Oh, gosh, I'm doing a story. Team comes back Monday. Um, we've had stories, everything about what they're doing for the relief effort. I've been trying to focus on football. I wrote a column for the Chronicle on uh, Monday about the team having to come back now and refocus on football. It's fine to have. It's all. It's been since Saturday in New Orleans. It's been family first, football second, and that's good in such a time of such tragedy. But now the season starts. They've got to refocus on football. I think they will. I think they're eager for it. I think Rick Smith and Bill O'Brien did a tremendous job during the Harvey, the uh, tumultuous times during Harvey, and the players really respected what O'Brien did for them. And and uh, he'll have their attention. And so I'm doing a story on Kami Fairbairn, the new kicker, I was stunned they kept him over Nick Novak, who had 127 points last year, 35 of 41 field goals, only three misses inside the 50. They kept the untested Fairbairn, who has a stronger leg for kickoffs. But they've taken a heck of a chance. They better be right. They don't want to end up in a Roberto Aguayo situation in Tampa. <laughs> and then uh, we'll be talking to Bill O'Brien about still balancing family and football and relief efforts 
you know, it's something he's got to figure out how to do. And I'll say this, it's good that they're, say, playing Jacksonville and not opening on the road at New England or Cincinnati and playing here because I think that uh, people need this game. People at Houston Texans need this game, and they need to win it, get off on a good start because there's a good chance if they want to start 2-0, and 2-1, and one, they better beat Cincinnati. Again, Texans kick off this Sunday at Energy Stadium against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And, of course, you can follow uh, John on social media if you want all of the latest info on the Texans. Uh, John, and, and for those listeners out there that don't follow you already on Twitter, which I'm sure they mostly do, uh, how can they find you on Twitter? It's McLean, M-C-C-L-A-I-N, underscore, on, underscore, NFL. McLean, underscore, on, underscore, NFL, and uh, I may be ruining my weekend, but I'm going to Waco, and I'm going to watch <laughs> Baylor play UTSA, and I'm afraid if they can't beat Liberty, I still don't know what the heck division Liberty plays in, but Baylor probably should drop down to that, <laughs> and I'm hoping like heck they can rebound because the schedule only gets tougher. Yeah, absolutely. You've got Duke coming up after UTSA and then also uh, a home game against Oklahoma, so it definitely does not get easier. But, uh, John, it's always great to have you on the Weekly Brew podcast. And uh, whether we see you at NRG or maybe uh, at McLean Stadium this week in Waco for the UTSA game, it's always great to have you on the show. Guys, thank you very much. I always appreciate it. And uh, good luck and have, have a lot of fun. This season It's going to be great. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. All right. This is the heel turn of the show. <laughs> Forget it, Austin. I'm sick of you. I'm sick of all, you know, your little literati and your small talk and your banter. Nobody cares, Austin. Fake news. Fake news. How about fake yous? What is, this is what the, is that okay, supposed to mean? I'll take, uh, yeah, I'm hosting now, Austin. This is Hunter Atkins, <laughs> sports reporter for the Houston Chronicle. I'm not filling in. I'm taking over. So, is this a Hunter takeover? H-Town takeover? Yeah. It's the weekly brew heel turn, bro. <laughs> All right? So wait, I'm wait, challenging wait, wait. you. Wait, wait, wait. You, know, you you're, think you're gonna you know take, something you're gonna about take baseball, over. Austin? You're going to take over, and then you're going to flee the country? Come on, man. Like, like a real heel. I'm just going <laughs> to run out of the ring. No, I, uh, the, you know, the, the intro music inspired by the greatest anti-hero in wrestling history. Stone Cold Steve Austin, the Texas Rattlesnake, stopping mud holes, taking names. <laughs> You're listening right now to the Weekly Brew. Hirsch, that's my dog. Hirsch, get me a beer. <laughs> in this case, that would be Alvin getting you a beer, right? Alvin, nobody, the pod, I guess the pod listeners don't know Alvin. Alvin's a tiny man who lives on a couch in <laughs> sous vides all day. He doesn't, he's not even looking at me right now. I'm looking at him on his couch, swiping through, surely, some online dating app. <laughs> there he goes. He's smirking. Nah, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, he's about to, he's about to show me right now. Swipe left, swipe left. <laughs> um, Austin and I were just... Austin Statton, talking to you. Good to be here. Live in the non-sponsored studio. Is there, is there a sponsor? Well, it's the Hunter Atkins studio, so you've got to find a sponsor. That's right. right <laughs> it's the Hunter Atkins Arena today. This is when we have like the the whole chant go the you suck chant right now. You suck. <laughs> you suck. Um but we were at the game today. I was working for a living. 
I was drinking beer for a living. Yeah. 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 I actually had uh, tickets that a, uh, a coworker gave me. Uh, she was actually doing Hurricane Harvey relief. So I, you know, w- went to the game with Alvin, uh, had like three Love Street beers. Great game. Astros won. Sweep the Mets. Should uh, drinking, you're, you're, you're you should be drinking Mets, Stone Cold's Broken Skull Ranch beer. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I couldn't have done that because I was. I was working for a living, but um, we saw a great game today, um, highlighted really by this idea. The, the theme of, of of the Astros this whole week has been intertwined with you know Harvey, right? right? As as everything else in the city has, but Just for Houston, as they're saying, Houston strong as they had on their jerseys. I'm not a fan of that. Uh, by the way, not. Oh, I was about to say not to be too hot takey, but I'm. I, I just I broke kayfabe. I didn't mean to do that. Houston strong. <laughs> What does that even mean? <laughs> Please. Houston Strong, is that what Tony Sipp thinks he is? Tony Sipp is horrendous. He yeah. should be DFA'd. Houston Strong. More like weak. But I'll tell you what. Tony Sipp has been on the DL. I'm not, we're not really going to talk about Tony no, Sipp. No, no, I was no, I was say, no, no. Nobody cares about him. Right, right. I'm not even doing a heel turn right now. Actually, <laughs> nobody cares about him. So let's, okay. No, the theme that I want to talk about was how, <clears throat> you know, the, the Astros are... They're on the road during the entire debacle. Debacle is kind of unfair. During, during the natural uh, disaster. And, you know, they're emoting all kinds of sorrow from afar. There's a triumphant return on Saturday in a great doubleheader. They played great. They played a, a crappy team. You know, the Mets are garbage. But, um, you know, it was a really good vibe in the ballpark. I was there yesterday. And then today, you know, I actually thought today was more emblematic of the return to normalcy. Um, the, the obvious linchpin of that is that Carlos Correa came back after missing um, 42 games. Yeah, he for, was at July, what, 17th? Is when July he was 17th, yeah. uh, tore a ligament in his thumb. And rehabilitated and, a lot quicker than I thought. I think the expectations kind of, put him back mid-September. Well, no. But I think he's key to help so, us. Uh, so, well, so the initial diagnosis was he would miss six to eight weeks. And right now... Technically, it's the sixth week. Right. So it, it he look he, he returned. It it feels like he returned early because everyone hit, was saying eight weeks. Yeah, and also there is a big difference between having the entire month of September essentially to play compared with just the last two weeks. He, um, he looked decent today. He had a decent. Base hit. How about base the, hit? <laughs> how about the foul ball he pulled in his? Uh, it was the second at bat. He laced a foul ball so hard, and Steve Sparks over the radio said. Um, fans in the front row, watch your lips. <laughs> um, no, I think Correa looked great, but 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 it, it, it to round out this idea about the theme, you know, signs of normalcy. Um, the highways in Houston, they are open again, all of them open. Um, brunch spots were buzzing today, as I, at least it seemed that way when I drove by, and skies were clear. And then you had Carlos Correa starting at shortstop, batting cleanup. Uh, driving in a run in a third inning in which the Astros mounted their 36th comeback victory of the year. Yeah, five-run inning. That was just, I don't know, it was good to see. Capped off, off by, by Mavens. Wait, Three-run bomb. Buy me a Coke. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, by Cameron Maven hit a three-run homer uh, to left field uh, to put them And it up. was a bomb. It was, it was, it was a um no, it, it wasn't as far as Springer. Springer, I mean that was Spring, right. Springer I mean, hit a home run crushed. Springer hit his thirty first home run today, four hundred thirty three feet. That that I don't know if it cleared the tracks. So he hit it to the tracks for sure. 
Um, well, I mean, it, it, it took a few moments for the fireworks to go off as if, as if they were almost waiting for it to land. Mm. So I assume it cleared the tracks. I think it, I think it probably, I don't know, it reminded me of like, what was it, 2003, 2002 when the Astros had the home run derby here at Minute Maid Park during the All-Star weekend. I was I didn't even know the Astros had, like, yeah, Houston had Lance, a team at that time. Was <laughs> Lance Berkman, Mark McGuire bombing them yeah, onto you, Crawford you Street. Know, you know, to lump those two together during that era, hmm. <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, I did just the, the the team looked today as it had when they were fully healthy. It looks like they have their mojo back. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. Like, so let's take out Mike Fires. We'll, we'll get to him in a moment. But you take out. I mean, frankly, even he looked like he had when the Astros were, you know, um, perhaps playing their best in uh, you know before the All Star break. Um, and to get so to, to get Correa back to have also I really like Bregman at the number two. I think I, I mean it it was really good when it was Springer, Altuve, Reddick, Correa. I think that was the one through four that I actually liked the most this season. I just, I just thought it was super interesting. Um, or when it was a lot of other times AJ went with um, he went with Springer, Altuve. Correa, uh, Gaddis sometimes, and and or um, Beltron, but which I'll kind of like. I'll tell you too. what, I like having Altuve hitting in the three hole, and then having Reddick, who's hitting. You know, he, he's just on a tear of the last few weeks, hitting about what three fifteen now on the season, somewhere around that range. Hitting fifth, I, yeah. I like him have, hitting fifth, and having Correa, who's being eased back into the lineup. You know, being protected by both of those guys. Yeah, no, that's smart. Uh, the only reason I like I have I, it doesn't make much sense now that Bregman is playing so well. But the reason why I liked Reddick um, in the number two slot sees a lot of pitches, and he's just not a big extra base guy. You know, he gets so many singles, um, and and uh, and he can run. But Bregman's fantastic. You know that Bregman in the forty-two games, Bregman played forty-one of the forty-two games that Correa missed. And he played twenty three of them at shortstop. Now you've—I know you're. This is weird to me. Fans are obsessed with Bregman playing shortstop, and I think it's because you know we're you know fans are so petulant and bratty and crappy now. With they just love transactions. They love change. They lo- I don't know why that is. Like he's a fabulous, fabulous. He's a fabulous third baseman. Cray is a fabulous shortstop. Why? What is his obsession with having Bregman play short? That said, I, that said, he. Did not make an error in the 42 games, well, the 41 games they played in uh, Correa's absence. I, I think Correa's got more of that athletic ability, more of a range than Bregman. But I think for the untrained eye, I think a lot of people think that Correa's frame is only going to get bigger as he gets more mature and a little bit older. Like, which, a, like Alex which, Rodriguez. Right, which maybe moves him over to the third base. All right, worry bit. about it then. Right. When he, when, by the way, when he's been signed to a $400 million deal by the New York Yankees. <laughs> That's a fair point, and likely, and I'm not even being a heel. Actually, it is what I think. No, that, that's 100 percent going to happen. I yeah, I he, he, there's no way. I think Bregman, he grew up. Look, he grew up. His nickname was uh, Janky growing we're, up. We're talking like Babe Ruth. What his he's under club control for what four year, four more years? I think is what it is. I think he's under control for four more years. Once you get past that, I think Bregman's in short. How many years? I think it's four. He's oh. been up for two years. I oh, think that, it was a six year deal. Oh, that's a long time. Forget it. Who, he'll know, you're talking about, I didn't know his deal was that long. Uh, yeah, I think it was like we a don't, year We deal. don't even know if he'll be playing baseball by then. I don't, it's a <laughs> long time. I don't know if I'll be here. I know, with, with North Korea, I mean, who knows? With, with North Korea, with Trump, well, I mean, just, there's so many different variables. 
So, um, yeah, let's get to Mike Fires. Mike Fires is a disaster. Wait, wait, wait. Disaster. That's funny. That's funny because one, you quoted Donald Trump, but also like <laughs> a weird, weird, weird week to choose that word. No, he was how Houston is that we've gone? How many, how many minutes are we in right now? Ten. And we haven't mentioned that the Astros on Thursday, minutes before the trade deadline, it was a minute made. Yeah, <laughs> that they um, that they decided to make some cool new T-shirts with Yuli Gurriel's hair as the design on the front. <laughs> yeah, and they also uh, acquired Kate Upton for a player to be named later, which was a really exciting pick. <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah, she was the uh, she was the. Uh, I have to bite my tongue. I know I'm going to get... I'm gonna, we're going to lose a sponsor if I go down that road. <laughs> but yeah, the, the Astros in the 11th hour. 11th hour, what's the expression? 11th or 25th? 11th, right? Yeah, 11th 25th hour. is a spike yeah, move. Definitely 11th hour. So the 11th hour, they get uh, Justin Verlander, Jake Kaplan. I'm happy. I'm so, he's the Houston Chronicles beat writer. Had on the show several times. Great guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Austin. I think he needed that. He needed you to go, great guy. Great guy. What makes him so great? He sent me a DM asking for me to say that. So oh, he slipped into your DMs. Huh? He did. Yep. He said for months, "quote Never going to happen." When it came to discussions about the you, Astros, you know acquiring. who did say it would happen, or who said it should happen? All of us. Well, right. <laughs> Other than Jerry Fogle. Oh, Derek Fogle, who also happens to share a birthday, as we found out a week and a half ago with Jared Fogle. Well, they're cousins, yeah. Right. It makes sense. They'd be born on the same day. But it happened. I was shocked. Yeah. 11.59. And also, and the package was pretty paltry. Uh, I know that Jake is very down on Daz Cameron, the uh, the center fielder who was included. you've got a stockpile of outfielders. I mean, why keep another prospect who hasn't proven anything at the big league level? How do you, you must, you must be so excited that, or satisfied that Crane, you know, finally said, you know, he opened up the barn. He said, win now. Well, he didn't say when now. Uh, Jeff Luno. He said, I'll sign the checks. Which, to me... That was his quote? No. (laughs) Okay, you can't say he said. He didn't... Fair. No, I I, I think... So Verlander is going to be paid by the Astros, just to get this out of the way, $40 million of the $56 million that he has left on his contract. Justin Verlander is under control for two more seasons, which is a pretty good deal. Um, And the final year of his contract... Which this is really interesting to me. Jake will, would know much more, but I was interesting that he that that was voided, and I would say that favors the Astros way more than it oh, favors. Financially, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they didn't give up. Uh, the prospects were Daz Cameron. Um, I can't remember the, their, their best pitching prospect. They gave up. Uh, but, it, was, yeah. it was not Forrest Whitley, who I think everyone is really high on, who is actually pitching as we're speaking right this now. This is another fan thing. Like this is the Bregman <laughs> sort. So like the kid, the kid is barely. He's nineteen. You know, yeah, he's, he's a year he's, removed he's from he's high in school. Baseball. But the fact that he's nineteen, no, no, no. I, I, that's yeah, he's nineteen, which means he has more time to figure it out. But I'll tell you what, I would trade away any commodity that you have in the minor league system for a guy who has turned it on so much in the past, who has proven to be a second-half pitcher. He's turned it on. I've been turned on. Um, yeah. It's, it's the he, beard. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was, th- I was thinking about the other acquisition in the trade. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So for, for those who, who... I guess people who are listening to our podcast, they would know oh, who Justin Berliners, right? Absolutely. All right. I'll, Cy I'll, Young, MVP, Rookie of the Year. I mean... Rookie of the Year, and he... Well, to add to that... So when Justin Verlander was a rookie in 2006, not only did he win Rookie of the Year, because he won 17 games that year, pitched wonderfully, he started Game 1 of the World Series. Why is this important? Well, 
the thing that the Astros really need right now is somebody with ex- they really needed was not just a, a good starting pitcher, but to boot somebody with a lot of postseason experience. Justin Verlander has pitched in 16 postseason games. Um, I, I'd have to look up exactly how many of them were clinching games or how many of those were you know game ones. Uh, it, the order of the games doesn't really matter, but um, that number, Austin, 16 postseason games, that is more than the combined total of the other starting pitchers in the rotation. Um, the rest have a combined seven. Uh, and, you know, that's dispersed between um, McCullers, McHugh, uh, Fires has one, uh, Keiko has two. And um, what makes Justin Verlander pretty special is that he has this very rare ability to get better as the game goes deeper. Another thing that no Astros pitcher has, by the way. Um, certainly not so good as, as Verlander, right? I mean, he still dials it up in velocity too as the game. That's gets his on. thing. He goes 95, yeah. 96 late in the game, which to me is more just than that. Remarkable. When he pit, when, more than that. When he on July thirtieth, the Astros played in Detroit, and Verlander shut them out through six innings and was living. He was living at ninety eight miles per hour. So no, he has he has a really interesting ability to when he needs a pitch. You know, runners on the corners, maybe runners in scoring position, and you got to keep it tight. He can, with impeccable command and effectiveness, just decide when he's in the mood, yeah, I'll go for something that's closer to 100 miles an hour, um, which is very remarkable. I think people don't, I think fans might think that, oh, well, if, anybody pitcher want, if any pitcher wanted to throw as hard as he could, he would, like, he could do it. No, the whole point is that your mechanics become undone. Right. right. And uh, Verlander is impeccable at that. Uh, he also is going to give them so much uh, depth in terms of being able to, you know, save bullpen guys. When he was with Detroit, Austin, look at me when I'm talking to you. What are you looking up over there? I'm looking up baseball reference. Verlander what are you stats. Looking, what, are, what are you looking up? I'm looking at his postseason stats right now. I'll tell you them. Ask me. <laughs> what do you want to know? Look at me. Don't look at the baseball reference. Look All at right, me. Look uh, at me. 2006, what do you do? Look me in the eyes, God damn it. 2006, what? what did you do in game what? five of the World Series? 2006, game five of the World Series. Lost to the Cardinals, so the the, the Tigers. Well, well, he gave up four runs. No, that is correct. He gave one of them was earned. Say it again, Austin. One of them was earned. Say it again. Three runs, one earned. Thank you. Um, No, he he hasn't pitched well in the World Series. Actually, he is he's winless in three games pitched in the World Series because the Tigers not only did they lose to the Cardinals in two thousand six, they got swept by the Giants in two thousand twelve. And Verlander did not pitch well, pitched really poorly against the uh, the Giants. He only went four innings, gave up, I don't know, like five runs? That you could look up. But it, it's fine. On mass, you look at his postseason record, fine, the World Series. It's really difficult. It's really difficult to win I mean, those games. You're playing games. the best of the best. And, and that, yeah. that's, that's what I like about this but, move. But, but, the, Astros, the Astros made this move not just to help them win the division or to win the American League. They made this move to win the World Series. And you look at the team that's likely going to come out of the National League, the Dodgers. Look what he did to the Dodgers just a handful of weeks ago. Shut them down. Arguably the best offense in baseball. A team who, a team, a team that the Astros just might face exactly. in the World Series. And, and so I think that was sort of like a, an audition for the Astros front office. Just saying, okay, do what you have to do to get this deal done. He's a guy with Keuchel kind of hit or miss since he's come back from the DL. I mean, he's had, what, two or three good starts, roughed up in Tampa. He's been, he's been unpredictable, right. I would say. Lance McCullers, who knows what you're going to get. Dude, Derek is big. So Derek Fogle, 
our friend who works for CBS Radio, who is a baseball savant because he was a, a former pitcher in college, he is insistent. It'll, it'll never happen in the long term, but maybe, maybe for the postseason. He is insistent that Lance McCullers has to be a relief pitcher. I could see it. Because think about it. You, you need what? Three Two pitches. Two. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. You need three to four pitchers. So Keichel, Verlander. You got to put Peacock in there. If if, if Musgrove, wow, that's it. I, Mus- I, I didn't. I don't think. I don't think so because I, I like him out of the bullpen, but just the way that he's pitching. I mean, in, in, in the fact that Musgrove has come on as of late. Who's your number four then? Do you go with McHugh? He's he's looked. It's definitely. It's certainly not Fires. Morton, is it Morton? Charlie Morton is really good. He he's really good. He's actually underrated. He's under. He's really good. Um, he also, also when the games get shorter, which is, which is sort of where we're headed with this, which is that when you're preparing for the postseason, oh, if even fewer than that, I, I, you know, you certainly, if we look at the way last year's world series, oh, well, went, we saw what game seven starters were pulled in the fifth. This is, so that's what I'm saying. Charlie Morton for four innings is, is fantastic. Charlie, Charlie, Charlie Morton for five or six also should be very good. But really, if you if these guys know the game plan is basically four to five innings, I it's pretty simple for uh, for Charlie Morton to do a good job. Um, no, I think I think Morton get, is guaranteed a spot. When it comes to Peacock, Brad, so Brad Peacock has had this miraculous surprise season, continues to be so consistent. Um, I can't even. This, can you look this up on Baseball Reference? Find me the the last like bad game that Peacock had. When that was, who the opponent was. So uh, I'll keep talking. Um, no, Peacock has been a surprise. He's been excellent, but he has the ability much more so than probably than McHugh and and McCullers, sadly, because I don't think McCullers will accept it. But of simply being moved into the bullpen to strike guys out in a pinch, uh, he's done it before. He's very uh, you know versatile in that way. So I think that he probably is more valuable in that role. Um, or rather, you know, like in concert with, if Peacock can be a good middle relief guy with Colin McHugh, that's more valuable than Peacock being a good starter without perhaps a solid sixth to seventh inning guy. Because we, and we, I mean, this is worth transitioning into. You know, this the bullpen uh, that's really unpredictable too. But they have played well the last month. I think, well, I mean, it, look it's at the, a, it's a sub 2.5 mm, ERA. Mm, 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 look at the schedule. That, that, that's, that's fair, but I mean, they've, they've been losing the games. It's just the bullpen has, it's, it's the offense, honestly, has been hampered with injuries. I, I don't, yeah, I'm, uh, I know that, so if, I know that for August they had a, um, no, I know that August the, the bullpen had, I, I don't know if it was the lowest, it was a very low ERA, it might have been the lowest in, in baseball, but. I, again, I wish we had Derek here to, to kind of fact, not, not to fact check this, but to BS check this. That the, I just don't think those guys are that effective. Like, I watched Devo, t- we watched Devo today, right? So, Chris Devensky, who was dominant for the first half of the season, gosh, his fastball command is a huge problem. Um, he, he had runners on, in scoring position with no outs um, today. In a, maybe it was runners in the court. He had two runners on with no outs in the eighth inning. He managed to get out of it. But, you know, those are situations. It's, it's like the Mets with a group of white guys that none of us have ever heard of right now. <laughs> I don't know who these players are. You know, Ploiecki? I don't know who these guys are. So, but yeah. back, back to your point about Peacock. If you look at his, his game logs, I mean... When was his last really bad start? 
Like you know, like, so, like so that was, that was August fourth against Toronto. The Astros won the game sixteen to seven. Wow. They gave up seven runs. All right, let's. It, so, it, so, so, was, those, so I was. When was that? August. August seventh. Okay. When was the one? Then when was the one before that? Back in June. Okay. And I don't even so know since, if it was a terrible start because he, oh, I mean, he gave up four runs, but. Other than that, he said quality right, so, starts so in every since, other outing. So since June, what is it? Look it up. What, since June? June 9th. So since June 9th, he's had one start that we would say is like a bad start. Yeah, it wasn't even in a high leverage situation. The Astros had already blown this game he's, open like 10 minutes. I don't deny that he's... He, I don't he's know. probably the best option to start a game compared he's a flex, with... He's a flex guy. Maybe you put him in in that three or four spot, see how the series is going. If, you, if, you're, you know, if you're up... Two but, games, none, two one, or something I'm sure, like that. I'm sure Derek would say yeah. something about how, though, there are ramifications for that in regards to the other guys that you want to be confident. None of them are going to be Mike Fires. No, Mike Fires today after the done. game. He's not going to make the postseason roster. I agree. I agree. I think, I think his time as a Houston Astro is it's probably a, it, about up. It's a shame because. You know, he's pitched the most innings of any starting pitcher on the team this year. And, he, on, and honestly, he was probably, for a stretch of about six weeks, probably the most valuable pitcher on the staff. That's what I'm saying, is that he, he was so he was stellar for a period of time in which they did not have Anyone. Dallas Keuchel, Lance McCullers, it Colin McHugh, Peacock, just Joe Musgrove. All four, you know, those four guys were gone. Charlie Morton, for a period, was on the DL. I don't know if he was in the DL at the same time as, as, as McCullers and everybody, but yeah. Fires carried them. He was excellent, and now he's so lost. After the game, he was very open today. He said, another embarrassing start by me. Just say, he just like threw it out there. And when he was asked by uh, Mark Berman of Fox Sports, but, look, that's an obvious question, but, but what's, <laughs> what's, a lot, like, what's going on out there? It's a good impression. Yeah. He, um, he was asked, you know, what has caused your decline? And he just shook his head. And he said, I don't know. I mean, the... Guy's lost, so it's unfortunate. I asked him, "Is he thinking about you know his place in the rotation because Justin Verlander has arrived and Lance McCullers is going to come back from injury on Wednesday in Seattle?" And he said he's not. I mean, I guess you know I'm sure he is. It's got to be in the back of your mind. I mean, you're fighting back for that front, front of his, front mind. Of his mind. It's of course it is. I mean, he's a so, guy that he's a guy that might get bumped to the bullpen if he's lucky. I don't think so. You think he's going to be DFA'd? I don't know. I, I don't know how the, how this works. I don't. You'd have to ask Jake Kaplan, Jake Kaplan. I don't know how it works in terms of the season ends. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought you were talking about the postseason. Yeah, the postseason. Might, no, 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 I no, don't no, think no, he's no. going to be on the roster. I don't. Uh, the reason why I don't think he'd be DFA'd is because if one of these other starting pitchers gets hurt in some way, you can still pull him up in the next round, right? There's that, or well, or frankly, let's say Dallas Keuchel. He's got whatever discomfort, you know. He's put on the ten-day DL, and it's a conservative measure, like what the Astros have done with these guys all year. These very conservative measures, putting guys on the ten-day DL once or twice. Um, you could, you know, you have that luxury of just simply giving a guy like Dallas Keuchel more time before you definitely have to pitch him no matter what. Um, so long as he's alive, and that's in, one of the, the benefits. That's one of the benefits with the September call-ups is you know you can give guys a little bit more rest without having yeah. to send people down or anything like that. So we're we're, we're a little scattered though. I wanna, right. Let's focus on the bullpen. Focus on the bullpen. Okay, Mike Fires. There's no reason to talk about him. The, 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 the playoff bullpen, the emergence of Joe Musgrove as, Joe Musgrove as a weapon is is really critical. Um, Will Harris had his second appearance today since returning from injury. 
Uh, he was bad in his first outing. He was good today, really good. Uh, had an inning-ending strikeout. Uh, he earned the win today. Um, Devo, I think, is an issue. I, I just, you know, he, there was he, there was a time when he was reliable. I mean, not only reliable, but guy. also where it was not a problem to go to him for two to three. I mean, sometimes three innings I mean, at of the beginning relief. of the season when we were recording, we were calling him Andrew Miller, right? Like postseason. Andrew I don't, Miller. but I don't think I do not. I certainly do not think he can throw three innings. I'm unsure if in the postseason he really he could do two innings. Uh, it's it it's strange, but he. He's either been worn out or, you know, maybe he is a little hurt. Could it be? And it's also he's been in the league for, you know, almost two, two and a half years. So scouting reports are getting a little bit better on him. Mm. I mean, that could be something as well. Well, his, his, fa- he, his he fastball command, like his his fastball command is really Yeah, bad. when he doesn't have his fastball command, so, his changeup doesn't so look when we, good. So, you know, let's say it's the sixth inning. I'll be, cons- I'll be like conservative and say it's the sixth inning and you got to pull one of these starters because... You're making me sound like in that situation, I do want Peacock. I'm sorry, you want Cock? What did you say? You want Peacock. Cock, yeah, Peacock. Yeah, Peacock. He, um, yeah, no, he, Peacock, he's big in those spots. Um, no, he could come up real, real huge, you know. Um, so Peacock, Musgrove, I don't, like the bridge to Giles, you know what I'm saying? But even Giles, honestly, no, he's, he's going to close. He's going right. to close. So the bridge to Giles. Gregerson's been iffy. Harris has Wait, been iffy. Gregerson, you're not pitching Gregerson in a game in the postseason. You need to win. No, he, he's a guy that's going to eat up innings if you need yeah, to. Okay. He doesn't count. This is what, no, the bridge <laughs> stop. Listen, listen to me. The bridge to Giles. Who is the bridge to Giles? This is a this is an issue because if you go with the standard of well, Harris and Davinsky probably could do it. Uh, we haven't seen them reliably do it since. June. 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 Hey, June. I, Don't I, blow a save. Is it Musgrove? It, it might be. He's in that mix. I mean, his, velocity, He's in that mix. his velocity is just elevated He's so, so much. good for an inning. Yeah. I mean, it, it, no, and his slider is remarkable. I mean, so anyway, whatever. That's that's the question lingering over the end of the season. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Astros are 3 0 since Kate Upton was acquired <laughs> by the city of Houston. Yeah, the no, you know she's engorged the spirit <laughs> of uh, of of Astros fans everywhere. So are you are you? Uh, I I, I kind of want to close on this because no, we should close on Altuve. We didn't talk about okay. okay. Uh, Jose Altuve today stole his thirty one thirtieth and thirty first bases of the season. And to me, what was this is so the sixth. Imp- okay, sorry. I was gonna say what's so impressive about that last one is he gets on after steals and then on a on a ground ball to the left side of the infield that's thrown over to first base. He you know. Hustles down yeah, the, the third, third and baseman on the sack fly. The third baseman fielded um, a ground ball by who is that? Correa. I think it was Correa. Correa. Correa grounds the third, and then on the throw from the third baseman, who was dragged not that far off the bag, but far enough. Altuve bolts for third. You're right. Guess the third, and then Josh Reddick drives him in with yeah. a sack fly. But he. What I was going to say is this is the sixth consecutive season in which he has stolen thirty or more bases. You know, at a time when obviously the stolen base is disappearing. And with Aaron Judge fading, Jose Altuve sustaining, he, he went today, he got two hits, I think. Yeah. I think two hits. Yeah. Um, what's his, I don't know what his batting average is. It must be 350 or something. I think it was like 357. I don't, I don't know. You know, it's going to be between him and Mike Trout for the most valuable player in the American League. Which is crazy because he missed six weeks. But he's that good of a Mike player. Mike Trout. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, he's that, he, I mean, he's, he's so valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 the Angels are, you know, I think they're going to make the uh, the playoffs. Yeah, so making, anyway, they're making a nice. All right. Push. What, what do you want to finish on? Uh, I just want to say that uh, you know, I love you too, Austin. Oh, yeah, I, I do hope you have a good trip and uh, here what? in a few hours to Vietnam. But I, I, I want to say that Astros fans were very critical of the Astros front office for not making the move and only essentially settling for Liriano at the trade deadline. And and what they've done this past week, acquiring Verlander, acquiring. Uh, Francisco you know, Liriano. Yeah, I mean, I mean getting, getting Mabin as, <laughs> as another center fielder. It seems like they continue to stockpile yeah. center fielders. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's refreshing as an Astros fan because we saw how hard it was when Crane purchased the club, and it was just, you know, you had a $13 million payroll. And they were still turning profits in the front office, but, you know, financially. But just for Astros fans, it was miserable watching 100 lost seasons after 100 lost seasons. And the time is now. I mean, this is a team that can contend for the AL. And just to see what they did to make the move, whether or not they get to the World Series or not, it, it at least gives Astros fans confidence. And as you posted on Twitter, it gives the team confidence with Dallas Keuchel's remarks. I posted that on Twitter? I think I think you posted a Keuchel video. Did I, you know? know? I was probably so drunk. <laughs> but I, I, I'm just excited. I mean, I, I think it's exciting for the city, and the city needs this right now. Hmm. Yeah, Crane opened up the piggy bank for once. It was nice. And he also donated $4 million to uh, Harvey Relief. For a guy who pinches pennies, it was good to see him step up. I agree. Net, you know, and uh, you really can't put a price on Kate Upton. <laughs> Anybody who's listening right now, they can go to the Houston Chronicle, not the, sorry, HoustonChronicle.com, see the incredible, expansive reporting that has been done about Hurricane Harvey. We have. It's been remarkable. Well, today, there's a story by um, Mike Hixenbaugh, fabulous reporter we have, and a really special online presentation we did for a story called 51 Inches. And no, it's not about J.R. Smith. It's about the devastating rainfall that uh, you know, besieged the city. And um, it, I, I just want to say that if you are tired of, of reading or following the news about Harvey, just do yourself one more favor. Write this, read this one more story. Uh, it's, it's really, really great. And obviously, I'm really proud of my colleagues at the, the Chronicle for all week. The, the photographers, too, the intrepid photographers, doing great work. I wrote a story about two Army veterans, ex-Army guys, buddies, who reunited in Houston to become rescuers. Hmm. Uh, during, and I joined them as they uh, rode jet skis through the floods. Uh, and then while you're there on HoustonChronicle.com, you might as well go over to sports and see all the stuff we've written about Justin Verlander since uh, he was acquired you know, right before midnight on Thursday. I wrote a, the Sunday sports cover story today all about what turned Justin Verlander into this kind of big game pitcher. And it goes all the way back to when he was a kid. He was 13 years old. And at the time, he was throwing 78 miles an hour, 79 miles per hour. Very good for a 13-year-old, especially one who was shaped like a noodle. Like he was. <laughs> but he, and he says, I want to throw 80 miles an hour. Right? He's kind of, you know, boasts that. And he can't do it. And he's in front of three adults, his dad and these two coaches. And one of the coaches who's catching him says, like, I can't get him to 80. You know, he says out loud, I can't get him to 80. He looks at the other coach, asks him, you know, if he could. And that other coach responds, I've seen better arms on a chair. And, you know, all these guys, you know, these, these grown-ups, they, ch- you know, they, they chuckle. <laughs> they knew exactly what they were doing because they challenged him. He came back pissed off 
and the next pitch, 82 miles per hour. That's that that epitomizes these big moments for Justin Verlander, and, and it would continue to go on and on and on uh, for he there. Thrives under high, pressure. Thrives under pressure. Yeah, he loves. He lives for it. He wants it, and and. You know, so I encourage everybody to check out the story. It's really fun. You see just an interesting side of the guy that most Houston fans are not going to know. Uh, so, so there's that. Definitely excited to see what Verlander could do Tuesday night in Seattle. Should be a good time. Hunter. Is it good for the Rockets? It is good for the Rockets. Hunter. <laughs> Should be a good time. <laughs> Jake Kaplan, good guy. <laughs> Hunter, uh, thanks for stopping by the studio this week. And, uh, Co-hosting, co-hosting, hosting. I took this is the this is the Hunter Atkins takeover. With Stone Cold Steve Austin, the (laughs) Texas rattlesnake. What, dude? Bear me. I hope you have a great time in Vietnam. Come back with some great stories, and uh, we'll get a full recap from you when you get back. Then after that, well, I actually just give me a full recap when we're driving to Waco for Baylor OU. That'll be fun. Two and a half hours. Stop off at the Broken Skull Ranch. Say hi to me and Hirsch. Done. (laughs) Appreciate it, Hunter. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is uh, Amy Paget from Sikkim 365. And uh, Amy, this is a week in which, you know, I think both you and myself would probably be stoked that it's college football season, you know, just trying to get to, uh, you know, a return to normalcy. But unfortunately, uh, the past week, Hurricane Harvey uh, wrecked a lot of havoc over southeast texas uh, and so our hearts have been uh, you know sort of elsewhere not on the college football opening weekend but uh, y- you know i you are in the dallas area what was your i don't know kind of reaction just watching everything unfold this past week as uh, the storms just devastated the city of houston and the gulf coast i mean i think that what I'm feeling is probably what people, not just in the Dallas area, but all around the country are feeling. There's being being removed from a tragedy and watching it on TV. You know, initially it's, it is a little bit of spectatorship. I remember, I guess it was Friday or Saturday night. There's the Jeff guy who's periscoping live from his car in the middle of the storm. And, you know, everyone on Twitter is watching and getting into it. But then it's like, the reality of the devastation that's being felt by people, hundreds of thousands of people all across an entire region of the state, um, it sets in and it's not just a spectator sport and it's not just, you know, something that we're watching from far away. You're realizing that it's, it's people who, you know, it's people whose families, you know, who are, I mean, their lives have been, completely altered. And it's not just a one day or one week thing. It's especially the farther removed we get from the actual storm itself, you're beginning to realize, okay, so that's over. Maybe the floodwaters are subsiding. Now people are going back to their homes and discovering that they've lost everything. They've, you know, they've got a huge rebuilding job ahead of them. And I think that what I'm feeling and what everyone else is feeling is just kind of a sense of helplessness. I know that there has been a huge outpouring of people wanting to donate time and goods to help Houston out in the past week. And so I think that that all is just a reflection of this sense of helplessness and the sense of like, what can I do? I need to do something. I need to do something. But what do I do? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could tell you uh, this past Thursday, I went up to my parents' house in the woodlands and, you know, they took in probably about two feet of water. I think there was something like 40 to 45 people at their house on Thursday, just helping them, you know, gut the place and just get everything out to the curb. Uh, Luckily, they did have flood insurance. You know, I think the stat that I saw was that 90% of the people who took in water in the greater Houston area did not have flood insurance. And so uh, to me, that's tragic. And so I I think if you look at it, I think my parents were in a fortunate situation. But one of the cool things that, uh, and, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast this week is, uh, I guess the power of social media. I mean, it's, it seems like, especially in the Baylor community, there's this Baylor Twitter where everyone seems to, I don't know, engage in different conversations, engage in different causes, whether it's to help out, uh, you know, an alum that has come on hard times or just people in need. And you kind of initiated this drive via Amazon Prime to help get supplies down to the greater Houston area. Can you just kind of talk about how that originated and what what that has been like from your end, kind of organizing everything. I've, I've already spoken about the feeling of helplessness and the feeling of wanting to do something. And Sunday, I was trading texts with Annabelle Stefan Harden. Um, she, she worked for Scout, and that's where I met her originally. She's been at Big 12 Digital. Her, her family is from Houston. She's from Houston. I was checking in with her to see how her parents are doing. And we were both just kind of lamenting the fact that we're up here in Dallas, we're comfortable, we're dry, we want to do something, what can we do? Um, and, you know, I know that I know that in times like these, sometimes the immediate reaction is, I want to send clothes, I want to do this, or I want to go there physically, but it's not always the best case scenario to have just an influx of people traveling down while they're still in the middle of tragedy. So... I'm just thinking like, okay, well, what can I, what can I do? What can I start to do? And Annabella and I are talking about all these people who are expected to be ending up in Dallas, who are evacuees from the hurricane zone and who are basically leaving their houses and leave all of, leaving all of their belongings behind. What can we do right now in Dallas to help? And we came up with the idea of just gathering as much stuff as we can that would be needed for people who are sheltering from the storm um, and making a big delivery together, you know, it was just something that we could do together. And, you know, she goes into work at the big 12 conference. So she's got an office and she can start looking for supplies and that sort of stuff. And I'm just like, you know, I have, I have several followers on Twitter. I'm just going to put it out there. Like, Hey, if anyone wants to do something, um, I'm, you know, stay at home mom, I have free time if you want to send stuff via Amazon just directly to my house, I will drive everything to places where it's needed. I can take advantage of that, save you save you a trip after a long day of work, save you a commute, do all of that. So I think we put that, Annabelle and I both kind of put that call or put that challenge out on social media on like Monday morning and packages started arriving at my house on Tuesday. You know, I had people... DMing me and just they would be like, you know, what can I send? And we're we were talking to the organization Trusted World. They were saying, you know, diapers, wipes, formula, non-perishable food, hygiene products, toiletries, all of that. And these things just kind of started arriving at my house. People were uh, who have never met me, who may not actually know me from anyone else on the street, are sending me money and sending me items to my house and. It's just, it, it, it's more of a reflection of what I said, that 
everyone wants to help. Everyone wants a tangible way to help. And that just, you see that in the outpouring. And I think especially, you know, Baylor is located in central Texas. And so you've got a huge alumni base in Houston and you have people in Dallas who have friends who are in Houston. And this was just a way to help. And it was, I'm, I'm honestly not surprised that people would kind of rise to the occasion like that. Yeah, it's it's, it's very cool to see it just, you know, happen, you know, sort of from the grassroots level. I mean, we look at, uh, you know, J.J. Watt, for example, starting the the You Caring drive. And it's, yeah, and it's raised over $15 million as a Friday. Uh, Shea Serrano, who we've had on this podcast in the past from the, uh, from the Ringer, actually sent out a tweet yesterday saying that he was going to uh, fundraise via Venmo. And I think he had something like $100,000 deposited into his Venmo account within four hours. And he's, of course, going to donate that here in Houston for uh, Harvey Relief. But to me, it's just fascinating to see how uh, people in the sports community have been able to use that platform and use social media to, uh, you know, maybe reach people throughout the rest of the U.S. that might not have even thought to donate before. You know, I I think I said something on Twitter yesterday, like, don't let people tell you that social media, which is at times just a cesspool of negativity and cynicism and the very worst of society coming out. But at, I mean, it's everything, everything that is being raised financially, donations wise, everything is being magnified thanks to social media, just the reach that a person can, I'm, I'm nobody, like I am not famous. I'm not an athlete. I'm not, you know, anyone, but through the community of Twitter, you know, if one person retweets something, it's seen by this many people. And then it's seen by this many people and everything just is exponentially magnified. And it's, I, people who aren't on Twitter don't understand it, but the people who are like, they understand how how much of a powerful tool it can be. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely great to see. And for, and for those of our listeners who uh, might not follow you on Twitter and, and they kind of want to you know get involved or try to uh, you know donate supplies, whether it's sending it to you or sending it to Annabelle, what is the best way for them to kind of reach out to you and uh, figure out how to help? My Twitter handle is of course ap underscore sickum three sixty five. I have my DMs open so that anyone can message me. I think that um, I'm not really sure what what my efforts are going to look like in the coming days in the sense that now, you know, shelters, organizations in Houston are putting up Amazon wish lists. So really, people can ship directly to these places, whereas before, you know, there were some questions about how things were going to be getting into the Houston area. I think that... um. My big focus going forward and something that I've been thinking a lot about in the past few days is eventually this isn't going to be the top story on the news. Eventually, you know, people from outside of Houston who aren't dealing with it firsthand are going to kind of go back to their regular lives like we see happening all the time. You know, there's a scandal, there's an outrage, and then two weeks later, like, nobody's thinking about it. So what I kind of am hoping to use my platform for is to keep people engaged with relief efforts, rebuilding efforts. You know, I've told, I've told everyone I know who's down in Houston, Hey, if there's a shelter or if your community is doing any local fundraising or is setting up an Amazon wish list or anything like that, like 
let me know so that we can tweet those things out so that people can know where they can go, where their efforts will best be utilized, that sort of thing. So my challenge for myself and my charge for myself is just going to be continuing to care and to highlight that there's still a need because there will be for maybe even a year. I mean, there are going to be people who are really just having to start over completely from the beginning. Yeah, it's tragic to see that happen. But at the same time, it's kind of refreshing to see the Houston community, the Texas community, uh, the sports community just rally around the city of Houston. Uh, You know, it, it just... I don't know. It, it, it's a sense of resiliency that we saw after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, just everyone rallying around uh, the city. And it, it, it's going to take time to rebuild. But uh, I, I have faith and confidence that uh, Houston will rebound and uh, be greater than ever. But uh, Amy, I, I definitely appreciate you joining uh, us on the podcast this week. And, you know, maybe next time when, when we're talking, uh, we don't have to talk about flood relief anymore. We can actually hopefully talk, you know, about the recovery process, how it's already going great. And then maybe we can talk a little football as well. That sounds great. And it just, uh, that rebuilding part that you just brought up kind of reminds me as a Baylor tie-in, just Matt Roll said something to the effect of like, how do you begin to rebuild something? You do it just brick by brick, piece by piece. And I'm sure that there is going to be you know, a feeling of being overwhelmed and not even knowing where to begin for a lot of people in Houston and around the state and all of that as we watch relief efforts. And it's just bit by bit, brick by brick, just do it piece by piece. Absolutely. And uh, it's great work that you're doing. And uh, definitely, uh, from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you for helping out and, you know, kind of doing what you can to help out with the relief efforts here in Houston. It's been uh, uh, great to see just everyone in the Baylor community sort of rally behind uh, the city. But again, for our listeners out there, if you want to follow Amy or if you want to get in touch with her, uh, you can follow her on Twitter at AP underscore Sikkim 365. But Amy, it's been great having you on the podcast this week and uh, hope to see you at a Baylor tailgate here shortly. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. I enjoy the podcast, so I feel special to be on. (laughs) Well, we're glad to have you. Thanks again, Amy. Appreciate it. Closing time. Another great episode of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Thanks to Hunter for stopping by the studio to talk a little Astros baseball. Thanks to John McClain talking a little Texans. And also Amy Padgett for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Jeremy, episode 107. I think we crushed it. Oh, it's actually incredible. I'm looking forward to so much uh, that's coming up this season in terms of sports. um, And of course, and how that's going to help Houston heal from Harvey. Um, of course, I'm not looking forward to as much college football, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll admit that that's a somber personal times. bias. It is summer times, but you know what? There's so much in college football that's fun to watch apart from just the school you attended. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, especially what happens in the rest of the Big 12. Yeah, I think, uh, gosh, I think Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Oklahoma State looked great uh, in, in their game on Thursday night. I think they've got to be, I don't know, my favorites. And Stuart Mandel, who we had on the show last week, had them as you know a playoff contender. I, I, oh yeah, I think absolutely. That's be and d- d- TC didn't look too bad. I mean, they shut out an FCS school, which I wish we were capable of. Um, <laughs> they, have a, but, they have a decent game coming up, I believe, this weekend against Arkansas. So that that'll put them that to that will yeah. And also, congratulations to Gary Patterson, who we had on the show last year, picking up his 150th win as a head coach. Yeah, absolutely. Great. They had a heartbreaking loss last year, Arkansas. If you remember, that game wasn't yep. like uh, it was. A little, it was close. You know, it was competitive. Um, what I'm looking forward to, to seeing is kind of how both Tom Herman and Matt Rule come after. Uh, first game losses and how they adjust their programs. I'm especially looking forward to seeing how Tom Herman does it because, of course, it's arguable that he's in a much more hostile environment there in Austin. Absolutely. Higher standards, more pressure, a lot more money on the line. Uh, But college football is back. I'm stoked. NFL football is back this Thursday night. 
And also uh, the full slate of games kicks off on Sunday. Of course, the Texans taking on the Jacksonville Jaguars. But uh, Jeremy, we had some great guests this week. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation with John. Uh, Taylor was great as well. And then also Amy. And Hunter, it's always great to have him in studio. Uh, we wish him uh, the best. He's traveling to Vietnam at the moment. But uh, episode 107, we hope that you enjoyed this. And if you want to enjoy our work a little bit more, uh, you can head to social media and just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also check out our website at weeklybrewcast.com. I post content there each Monday morning. But it's Labor Day. We hope that you uh, enjoyed listening to this podcast today. And we hope that you uh, enjoy the rest of the week. And uh, if you're still recovering from the storm, which I know a lot of you are, uh, we're definitely praying for you. And if, uh, if you know, we hope that uh, we know that you are going to be resilient and come back from this. But uh, Jeremy... Great having you in studio, man. Absolutely. And uh, for our listeners that are in a position to give, remember that the American Red Cross is, of course, taking donations for Harvey and um, to consider that moving forward as so many families are still struggling to get on their feet. Yeah, absolutely. And two other organizations that I would look at would be to go to J.J. Watts uh, organization, which is youcaring.com slash J.J. Watt. They've raised more than $17 million. Also, as I mentioned on last week's show, Team Rubicon is a great organization. They're veteran-led. They're going to be down here for months doing disaster relief. So it's a a company, it's an organization, nonprofit that we've worked with at BP multiple times. And uh, I I know they do great work. And uh, I'd highly recommend putting uh, your money there as well but on behalf of all of our guests this week and uh, my co-host Jeremy Paxson Hunter Atkins my name's Austin Staten we'll see you next week you've been listening to the weekly brew 